Hello. You have discovered the Felon File. Felonfile.com is a podcast exploration and discussion of law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Felon File is hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, sergeant, author and researcher. The Shade of Blue Stories for Felon File today. Two married couples whose wedding bliss was not so blissful. Plus, an additional Shade of Blue Story from 2022. Another special place in hell story or at least the beginnings of one. Background Music. Hardboiled hosted by Purple Planet. The sponsor for today's episode of The Felon File is The Salty Heifer Home Store and more The Consignments, Lairways, Antiques and Home Decor Located at 75 Roy Edwards Lane Mars Hill, North Carolina Contact Trish the owner at the Salty Heifer 75 at gmail.com Scott, we're recording Welcome once more to another episode of Felon File, where, as Victoria said, we look at law enforcement, court cases, crimes and punishment, the good guys, the bad guys, the not-so-smart guys, the crazy guys, the crazy gals, and anything that would make a good story, what we refer to as a shade of blue story. Blue, of course, referring to law enforcement as opposed to the other type of Shade of Blue story. Today we have two Shade of Blue stories for you, both of them having to do with homicide. These are old stories that uh, go back some time. Going back to about the 1890s, 1892, to be exact, and we're going to Georgia, about 12 miles from Rome, Georgia. You know what they say about the Georgia ladies? Well, maybe you don't know what they say about the Georgia ladies. Well, anyway, they are amazing, amazing women. My 95-year-old mother-in-law is a Georgia lady. She likes to go to the Waffle House locally. And if you're listening in another country and don't know what Waffle House is or have ever been to one, I'm sorry. As soon as you get to the United States, you got to check them out. Kind of a legendary location. But she likes to eat breakfast there at the Waffle House, and we will go. Older gentlemen will, will come into the restaurant, walk by her, talk to her, just out of the blue. When they pay their tab and go to leave... They'll pay for hers as well. Not mine, not my wife's, but they will pay for hers. They buy her breakfast all the time. It's, it's totally amazing. 95 years old, she's still got it. My wife refers to her as a modern-day Scarlett O'Hara. Anyway, back to our Shade of Blue story. C.F. Stevens owned a store in Livingston, Georgia. Like I said, about 12 miles from Rome, Georgia. He had employed a gentleman by the name of Frank Wilkerson as a clerk in his store, and he also provided Wilkerson with room and board in his home. Stevens was getting increasingly unhappy with this arrangement, though. 
and he kind of thought things just weren't right. Some of the neighbors had told him of rumors that Wilkerson and his wife, Jessie Stevens, were getting somewhat familiar with each other. As the media sources in 1892 published it, they were getting intimate. And at one point, while working in the store, he found some letters from Wilkinson to Jesse that appeared to confirm this suspicion. Stevens didn't want to go off on a wild tangent, so he wanted to do some investigating of his own to find out for sure what was going on. So on the morning of July 12, 1892, he told his wife he was going to go to Rome and would be back around 3 o'clock that afternoon. Now, instead of returning at 3, he came home around 2. He parked his horse, excuse me, he hitched his horse about a half mile from his house and walked the rest of the way. Going in through the back door, took off his shoes be so quiet that no one would hear him and snuck and snuck further into the house. Well, he found the bedroom door was closed. Now, when Stevens opened the door to his own bedroom, he found Wilkerson and his wife in what was said to be a compromising position. He drew a pistol and shot twice, wounding Wilkerson. Now, he was apparently using a Derringer of some sort because he only had two rounds in his pistol. After seeing that the two rounds didn't put Wilkerson down, he leaped and grabbed Wilkerson and pulled him and knocked him to the floor. Whereupon Wilkerson drew his own pistol and shot twice, one of the bullets hitting Stevens between the eyes, and he died just a few minutes later. But, according to some stories, before he died, Stevens took the incriminating letters from his pocket and wrote on one, I caught them in the act. Now, C.S. Stevens gave the letters to what the media referred to as his manservant, saying, take these to my father, they tell a tale. I've got a little bit of problem with that. If you shoot somebody between the eyes, that's an awful lot of stuff to go through after being shot in the head like that. Now, Miss Stevenson allegedly tried to grab up the letters, but the servant left with them, ran off, and she and Wilkerson were both arrested after a coroner's jury determined that, that Wilkerson had shot his boss, Mr. Stevens. Now, there was a trial, of course, Frank Wilkerson was tried the following October in Troy, Georgia, and it caused a sensation due to the, the prominence of the Stevens family. They apparently were very well off and very well connected. It's said that the courtroom was packed every day. More than 60 witnesses got up and testified. There was very little hard evidence. There was actually no other witnesses to the incident other than the wife, according to court records and newspaper articles. Where the manservant came from, I'm not exactly sure. The debate centered on the incidents that led up to the murder and the motives of the individuals involved. 
Several witnesses for the prosecution testified to themselves having caught Wilkerson and Jesse Stevens in, quote, questionable attitudes. Okay. One testified that Stevens had not meant to kill Wilkerson, just to scare him. That he had told Wilkerson to leave several times, but Wilkerson had refused to and said that he would leave only over Stevens' dead body. That's an interesting thing to tell your boss. Others testified that Wilkerson had indicated to them that he had intended to murder Stevens at the first opportunity he had, and that Miss Stevens was familiar with the plans and knew what was going to happen. Now, Frank got up on the stand himself and testified in his own defense. His voice so soft that he could not hardly be heard from 10 feet away, and he had to pause and took into crying jags on the stand several times. He said no one regretted the killing more than he did. But when Stevens started firing, he had nowhere to go and no choice but to shoot back. He denied having any type of intimate relationship with his boss's wife, Mrs. Stevens. And when Stevens caught them, they were standing and talking about his leaving the house. And the letters in question, the letters themselves, were just thanking Mrs. Stevens for some advice that she had given him. That's an interesting way to put it. Jesse Stevens also denied any intimacy with Wilkerson, but she did say that she loved him more than she did her husband when she was asked on the stand. She also said the handwriting on the letter was not her husband's, but belonged to a Deputy Sheriff McConnell, who had known Stevens since boyhood, and they were very, very close friends. She said the signature was definitely his and not the signature and writing of her husband, Mr. Stevens. Now, even with this information going out, the jury ended up convicting Frank Wilkerson of voluntary manslaughter after deliberating for less than an hour. Following the conviction, a grand jury was called and they ended up indicting Jesse Stevens for adultery and accessory to murder, which is interesting considering he was not convicted of murder, but of manslaughter, and the grand jury was convened after the fact. According to several news articles from that time period, Jesse up and disappeared. She is said to have fled the city before the police could take her into custody. Now, two years later, Jesse ended up being arrested in Macon, Georgia, on drunk and disruptive, along with another young lady and a gentleman. The newspaper article said that Jesse cried and wept openly while in her jail cell while the other lady and the gentleman who was arrested with her proceeded to yell, shout, curse, and scream so loud that they could be heard a block away from the jail and that they did so for most of the night. Now, we don't hear from Jesse until 
1894 when the Atlanta newspaper posted notices that Jesse, as well as some other individuals in the community, had several letters at the post office that had not been claimed in quite some time. Apparently at that time, it was common practice to publish the, the names of the individuals who hadn't picked up their mail yet, along with instructions on how to pick your mail up and the fact that you would end up owing one penny for the late delivery, for the late pickup. There were two instances in 1894, one in 1905, and one in 1907, where Jesse failed to pick up her mail. All of these incidents happened in Atlanta at that time. After 1908, Jesse Stevens disappears from media sources that I can find, and I wasn't able to locate anything more further under her name as far as court cases go in the state of Georgia. Our next Shade of Blue story also is a marriage situation. When William Varner proposed to Melinda Jones in Washington, Maine, in the late 1860s, relatives on both sides of the family, both the bride and the groom's relatives were opposed to the marriage. Varner, it seems, had returned from a recent service in the military in the 29th Regiment of the Maine Volunteers. While he was in the military, he, he picked up a bad drinking habit. And when Varner was intoxicated, he became very irrational and violent. Relatives feared the marriage would end in tragedy. Now, Melinda Jones had married Samuel Jones, a farmer, around 1859. The two of them had grown up together in Washington, Maine, and they had a happy marriage raising three children. But Samuel grew tired of farming and decided to go west and seek his fortune and he never came back. In California, he had no luck prospecting and ended up working as a farmhand. At first, he would send, send Melinda small sums of money as best he could, but soon his letters stopped entirely. Melinda made some inquiries and came to the conclusion that Samuel was dead. And it wasn't long after that that she married William Varner another one of her childhood friends. Now, as relatives predicted, the marriage was quite a stormy one. There were periods of calm when the couple seemed happy, but Varner could not stay sober, and when he got drunk, he would beat and abuse his wife. Four times, she left Varner and went home to her parents, but Melinda remained infatuated with Varner, and each time and each time she left, she ended up coming back to him. In June of 1871, after a rather dicey argument between the two and fight, Melinda had gone back to her parents. And Varner decided that he was going to go get her back. Now, when she refused to go with him, he lost his temper and stabbed her in the breast. Now, her mother tried to intercede, and in a fit of rage, Varner 
stabbed his mother-in-law as well. Now the wounds weren't serious and Varner was arrested for assault and he was released on a $400 bond and skipped town. And he was gone for quite a while. Now while he was gone, kind of on the run, Varner would write and tell Melinda where he was. Four months after the incident, Varner came back to town and Melinda took him back as if nothing had happened. This time she abandoned her children and took off with him to live in Massachusetts where Varner's sister happened to live. Now their time down there was good at first but then it started following the same pattern it had before. Periods of marital bliss punctuated by drunken abuse. On the night of December 16, 1871, the couple attended a ball there at the Main Street Square in Lynn, Massachusetts. Allegedly, Varner took some jealous offense to attention that his wife Melinda was receiving by several individuals there, especially one man in general. The matter appeared to be forgotten the next morning. Varner got up at five o'clock, he built a fire and went out to buy some liquor. When he returned, they sat down to breakfast and according to other individuals in the boarding house they lived in, they were seen laughing and joking together about the previous night. Now after breakfast, Varner began drinking. At the night of the party, his shirt had gotten dirty and stained. And Melinda, being the good wife, she said she would take it downstairs and wash it for him. And he said, nah, never mind. I'll, I'll just get someone else to do it. I'll, I'll take it to the cleaners. I'll hire someone to do it and save you the trouble. Uh, but she blew that off and took the shirt downstairs anyway. Now, apparently, her disregard for his wishes infuriated Varner. Of course, he had been drinking, and he went down the stairs after her. After a few minutes, the other boarders in the house reported that they heard a blood-curdling scream coming from the basement. Miss Rodney, one of the boarders, testified that she saw Varner come up the stairs holding a knife. His clothing saturated with blood, and he casually walked to the sink, washed his hands, cleaned his knife, folded it, and put it in his pocket. Turning to Miss Rodney, who was standing there, Varner commented to her, Give my coat and gloves to my sister, for she is dead now, and I have got to die. Varner then proceeded to go downstairs, followed by Mrs. Rodney and some of the other renters in the boarding house. He went downstairs, stepped over the corpse of his wife, and left through the back door. Now news of the murder traveled fast, of course, and as expected, news of the murder traveled very quickly, and men turned out by the hundreds to do what they thought was their civic duty and go in pursuit of Arne. They had him cornered against a rock after a couple of days of looking for him, but Varner had his knife out again, and he stood poised ready to thrust it at anybody who would 
come close enough to where he could take a swing at them. One of the law enforcement officers on the scene, an officer, John Thurston, attempted to rush Warner. He tried to use a billy club or a nightstick that he had to put Varner out. But in the process, he slipped and fell, and Varner jumped on him almost instantaneously and started stabbing him with his knife. At that point, another law enforcement officer, the city marshal, Daniel Barnett, he drew his revolver and fired five shots at close range, killing Varner. Officer Thurston suffered several stab wounds to the face and head, and he ended up having a bullet through his hand because of the rolling around on the ground trying to fight Varner. Uh, when the city marshal tried to put an end to the fighting, uh, one of the rounds ended up going through the officer's hand. A coroner's inquest was held on December 21st. They ruled that Marshal Barnett's actions were justified and that he was coming to the aid of a third party and possibly save the other officer's life by putting an end to the fight. Now, domestic violence is a very serious topic and not one to be made fun of. If you are in a domestic violence situation, please seek some help. There are people out there, there's organizations out there that can help you. Contact your local law enforcement. Law enforcement is trained to help with these situations and we come across them quite frequently. Domestic violence coupled with uh, substance abuse is not uncommon, unfortunately. Does this remind you of something that you've heard today or read in the newspaper or seen on a news show? Domestic violence has been around a long time. If you see it, say something about it. Offer to help. It's not as easy as just walking away from it. Well, that's our two Shade of Blue stories for today. A little bit on the serious side, but nonetheless important stories. Hopefully to show you that things that have gone on in the past, they continue to go on because we as human beings are very slow to learn our lessons. So in the meantime, if you have the opportunity, step up and help somebody. It's really the right thing to do if you have the opportunity. Don't forget, we'll be back next Saturday, 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time in the USA. Coming to you from the Scratch Ankle International Recording Studio. Be sure to check out our website where you can get copies of my books from links to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, both fiction and nonfiction. Also, you can pick up some felon file t-shirts and or coffee mugs if you so desire. Nothing says leave me alone in the morning than wearing your felon file t-shirt and drinking your coffee from a felon file coffee mug. Great way to start the day. Thank you guys for listening. Victoria, I'm going to turn it back over to you. You have the control board. Bye, y'all. Thank you, Scott, as a special edition to Felon Files Shades of Blue Stories.
I have another special place in hell story. A local sex predator watchdog group released an undercover video on March 24, 2022, that now has an anchor professor on administrative leave. Members of the Dads Against Predators group pose as juveniles online in an attempt to lure out predators. Set up meetings, and then confront the men who show up. Then posts videos of those confrontations online, with many going viral and attracting thousands of views. D. A. P. Was contacted through the dating app Grinder by the University of North Carolina at Asheville. Professor of Inorganic and Computational Chemistry George Hurd. According to the online posted video. Professor George Hurd thought he was showing up to the Asheville Mall to meet up with a 14-year-old boy for sex. Instead, he met another man who was with the group Dads Against Predators. Who confronted him and video recorded their interaction. The university at Asheville has put George Hurd on administrative leave saying an investigation into the allegations was ongoing. A separate criminal investigation by the Asheville, North Carolina Police Department is also occurring. Professor Hurd is also involved with assisting middle and high school students through the North Carolina State Math and Science Olympiad. Of course, Professor George Hurd is assumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. But we would like to take this time to remind everyone of that special place in hell set aside for abuses of children. Asheville's TV media and newspapers have not yet reported on this situation. When contacted Asheville City Schools and the university had no comment, you have been listening to The Felon File Podcast with your host Scott Lunsford. For more information on this podcast or Scott's books and writings go to scottlunsfordauthor.com and felonfile.com Scott can also be contacted at these web pages. This is Victoria your producer. Thank you for listening. 2. 1. End